welcome into episode 21 of Canucks Speakeasy Podcast. Uh, my name is Doug. And I'm Pete. Doug, it's the Louis Erickson episode, number 21. I was thinking more the Yerke Lume episode. More the Mason Raymond. I, li- I like Beef Yerke the best, though. That was always my favorite nickname. I don't, it never caught on, <laughs> but I always called him Beef Yerke. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what a weekend in sports. Jeez, man, it was uh, tough to get much done. I was up at... 6 a.m. on Saturday for the Sweden-Russia game, and then it just kept on going after that. Yeah, I mean, my uh, beloved Pats uh, lost, so it looks like it could be an end of an era, or at least Brady could be moving on. Um, I'm sure most NFL fans out there are very happy about that, and I'm sorry, Doug, I'm, I'm included in that. Hey, no worries, no worries. You have to be great to be hated, I guess. It's true, and I, I, I like Belichick, but... Uh, I, I'm just tired of the Patriots there. <laughs> Sorry, no. man. Hey, dude, don't. But even even that, like, that wasn't even one of the better games. You know, yeah. I thought that Bills-Texans game, even though at the end there was, like, mishap after mishap, it was a very entertaining game. The Vikings-Saints was yeah. a great game overtime. yesterday. Two overtime games. Uh, Seahawks won, which I'm very happy about. Not the prettiest game. Yeah. You got all the hockey. You got the two Canada games going on. You had the Canucks playing as well. Yeah. Like, man, what what a weekend. You're right. A suspension to one of the most skilled uh, prospects the Canucks have playing in the World Juniors. Yeah, that was that made me getting up at six in the morning and four and a half minutes in. I was like, oh, really? Come on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't get up quite at six. I, I think I scrounged out of bed around 730. And then I was watching the game and I'm like, oh, I haven't heard Hoglander's name at all. And then I looked up on uh, on Reddit and I was like, oh, he's actually been thrown out of the game. I was like, oh, what happened? And yeah, uh, we'll get into that, I guess, a bit later. But uh, yeah, overall, uh Let's get into this, Pete. Yeah, for sure. Well, episode 21, uh, Canucks Speakeasy. You can follow us on Twitter. That's at Canucks Speak. You can follow me at Pete underscore gas. And give me a follow at Doug Venn. And as always, uh, we got our Spotify playlist that is ever growing with the outro tracks to each episode. So give us a follow on Spotify at Canucks Speakeasy. Yeah, we got that good little uh, outro track playlist going over there. Yeah, absolutely, Uh, and it continues to grow. Well, hopefully our listeners continue to grow as well, and let's uh, let's start this episode with uh, the World Juniors. Actually, before we get into that, we should mention as well, we've got David Quadrelli joining us for an excellent conversation later on about all sorts of things Canucks, so do stick around for that. But first, like I said, let's talk a little bit more about the Juniors. Yeah, so uh, what were your takeaways overall? Obviously, Team Canada won the gold. Uh, I think we're all happy about that. Uh, I think most of us are. I know we uh, see our stats. We have some listeners in Sweden and Finland popping up every now and then, so I'm sure they're not too happy about it. But, yeah, it was it, for Canada, it was, it was a tournament of redemption in so many ways. I mean, first of all, getting the gold back is always a redemption when Canada doesn't have that. Uh, a comeback against Russia as well. There was a point where after five and a half periods— Russia had outscored Canada 9-1 to one through the, the five-and-a-half periods that they played, and then all of a sudden that last half a period, boom, three goals. Well, yeah, Russia really seemed to have a meltdown at the end of the game. I mean, I know there was the controversy with the puck hitting the TSN camera, which has more followers on Twitter than I do now, oh, which yeah. is amazing. I mean, that's how, that's how the Internet works. But, uh, 
Yeah, but you know, even that, and I, I understand why Russia. I I do think it should have been a penalty personally. Oh yeah, hundred percent. But they had an absolute meltdown, and you know what I mean. Their captain obviously broke his stick and then tried to play the puck with a broken stick, which caused a penalty. There was another penalty they took prior to that for I believe uh, interference. So you know, at the end of the day, sure that one play might have swung things, but the Russians still had a chance to tie the game up, and they're also the ones that gave up that lead that they had going into the third period. And I do think the better team won and, you know, congratulations Canada. And uh, yeah, I agree. The better team did one. I thought it was an incredibly entertaining game. I, I really enjoyed watching that one. It was a lot of fun because you also had Pod Colson on the other side. And every time Pod Colson was on the ice, I was just focused on him and watching him and he impressed the hell out of me. Um, I also thought also with the tournament, um, just beating the Finns was redemption. Yeah. Beating the Americans at the start of the tournament. That always helps as well. Uh, it was it was a great great tournament overall. I mean, I think it was better after day one than all of the tournament in Vancouver, Victoria last year. Yeah, I know you and I went to quite a few games. I mean, you bought the entire package mm-hmm. to all the games, um, and I went to a couple, and you treated me to one of the games. Again, thank you very much. <laughs> no worries. Um, but yeah, it was one of those things where uh, last year's tournament just it wasn't that entertaining compared to this year. I thought this year there was a lot more entertaining games that kind of came down to the wire. I know uh, the Czech Republic had a couple of games. That game against the U.S. I thought was great, where Carl Plasic had a really good game, and he was another Canuck prospect that I think you know was a little bit you know an unsung hero for the most part uh, for the Czech team. Uh, but overall, what were your thoughts on Paul Colson? You thought he looked good. Mm-hmm. I know the production and the dominance that I think a lot of Canucks fans thought he might be doing at this tournament weren't really there. Uh, but what were your thoughts of his tournament overall? So a few things with Pod Colson. Uh, he is, man, he is a snake-bitten player. His his vision is is really something else on the ice. He has a really nice laser of a pass. And he kind of parks himself behind the net a lot of the time, especially on that power play. But he's setting up dishes everywhere. And there's a couple of times he just got robbed of primary assists. He doesn't come across to me as much of a shooter, but he goes hard to the net. And what really excites me about him is that this is kind of a different dynamic uh, to the Canucks prospect pool. As we have had a lot of these really high-skilled guys, and Hoglander is one of these high-skilled guys as well. And you got Tyler Madden, who's a high-skilled guy over there. Pedersen and Hughes, when they came over. Pod Colson has all the skill and has everything you need. He's got the frame for it. But he's a different kind of presence, and I'm really excited to see what he brings. I know people are like, oh, he doesn't score a lot. We all know how he's bounced around between three leagues and Russia. Um, he's also eligible to play in this tournament next year, and he will play in this tournament next year because he's under contract to play in Russia. And I am really curious to see this tournament next year what Pod Colson does because I think he could just dominate. Yeah, I, I think it was actually – I want to give credit to – Daniel G. Uh, I believe it was Daniel G. He put up a little thing just kind of recapping Pod Colson's juniors tournament and how he did play really well and he was snake bitten. But, you know, for fans to also remember that, you know, he's still only 18 years old and his la- last year he played as a 17 year old, which is very rare for Russian players yeah, to make that squad and to actually be a contributing member. Next year's the year where he'll be 19. He'll probably be the captain or part of that leadership group. And I think next year's the year that I think Canucks fans are going to really hope that he dominates this tournament. For sure. I think next year he will dominate the tournament as well. I think overall he looked really good to me. I, I didn't see him make a lot of mistakes. Uh, he drives really hard. He's in the corners. He just plays a different game. He's a tenacious player. And I, I don't know. There's just, it's very unusual for us as Canucks fans to have a highly touted Russian prospect 
and to have a highly touted Russian prospect who's not a complete skill guy. And he does have skill, don't get me wrong, but he's not going to be the type of player, I think, that comes over and pops you 40 goals. I think he's more likely to get you 50 assists and just be a contributor in a lot of other ways. And putting him into this top six, well, by then it'll have to be a top nine uh, in a season and a half from now. It's not that long. He's going to be a really exciting addition to this team. I'm very excited from after really getting to watch him play as much as I did there. Really excited. Yeah, I think uh, Igor Larionov, I believe, did a radio hit today, and uh, he compared him actually, funnily enough, to Mark Messier. Yeah, I saw that. I'm like, uh, wrong market, man. Maybe well, not. and then someone said, oh, it's funny, we've got the Swedish Gretzky and the Russian Messier. Yeah, hey, they're, they're <laughs> not wrong, though. Um, I think there's a lot to be excited with him. I think as well with Hoglander, who uh, could come over next year to play um and there's an argument to be made for him playing in vancouver or utica or in sweden i i mean he can be in any of those places it's going to be a really interesting decision by the canucks team but with the canucks having some cap issues bringing in a guy like him on an entry-level deal might be a way to kind of replace some of these guys that were likely to lose in UFA and not be able to replace or necessarily with RFAs. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I guess the big UFA up front that the Canucks are probably going to lose, and it's really unfortunate because the injury, I think, uh, really hurt him is Josh Levo. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, for me, I th- I'd love Hoglander. I think he can come over and potentially make an impact on the team next year. My only issue with that is I just don't know who he plays in front of, right? They got guys that they're kind of committed to, and I don't know where he kind of slots in ahead of them. And he's not a guy that I don't think – I don't think it's going to help his development playing on the fourth line. Maybe the third line if he's playing with a guy like Gaudet and maybe Vertanen. Yeah, I I think Hoglander has to be – Top nine? It, top nine for sure. Preferably top six if you can make it work. Pod Colson's the type of player, though, I think he could start on the fourth line. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but, of course, that's not going to help us next season with the cap, but it'll be the season after. But overall, um, really impressed. Hoglander with third in the tournament scoring. He probably would have won it if he didn't take that uh, penalty in that game against Russia, which I do believe was a penalty. I can't argue against that call, especially with IHF rules. And speaking of that... I Again, I've said this before. I love double IHF officiating. I love it. It's consistent. Any time mm-hmm. in the game, a penalty is a penalty. They don't do this stupid stuff that the NHL does with makeup calls. I hate that. I, I was at the last two Canucks games this week, the Chicago and the New York games, and you could just tell when a team takes two penalties in a row. It's like, oh, well, don't blink because here comes one against you. That's not how a game should be officiated. I like the double IHF. They call a penalty a penalty no matter what it is in the game. So, you know, Fair enough. Hoglander, I agree it was to get kicked out. That was the right call. But he probably, if not for that, he could have, I think, at least tied for the tournament lead in scoring. Yeah, I mean, I do think Alexei Lafreniere looked probably like the best player in the tournament overall. But Hoglander at times did look like one of the most offensively gifted and, you know, drivers of offense on the entire tournament. And, you know, I know Craig Button mentioned, you know, that him being suspended in that Russia game was a huge loss for them because he's probably their most skilled player offensively. And, you know, he was definitely a guy who was driving their offense along with uh, uh, Fagamo. Fagamo, I think. Fagamo, yeah. I know we weren't sure last week, but Fagamo is uh, is the correct way to say it. One last thing with the World Juniors before we jump over to the big club. You see that interview with Tony Utenen? Yeah, I thought it was hilarious. Just uh, prior to the Canada-Finland game, Utenen, who I'm sure most of our listeners know, has been a bit of a Canada killer the last couple of years. I believe he scored the winning goal last year to eliminate Canada. We were at that game. We were at that game. And then I I believe the... 
I don't know if it was the year prior. There was another game where he had scored another goal or two. It was this year. He had a two-goal game in uh, the preliminaries against Canada. Yeah, I don't know what it is. I think the guy's only scored five goals in the last calendar year, and three of them have been, have been against Team Canada. Yeah, it was pretty funny. He he took it all uh, in stride, said how he hadn't, hadn't scored yet, and he was saving it to play Canada. It's pretty funny. But anyways, Utenin was in this tournament as well. Not very noticeable, but that's his game. And uh, But he uh, he had a good tournament overall, I thought, as well. Yeah, I think overall Canucks fans should be pretty happy with the prospects that, you know, made their respective junior teams. Uh, you know, I think Carl Plasic played well. Tony Utenin did have a pretty big defensive gaffe against Canada. But overall, you know, Utenin's game is... I, akin to, you know, a, a Chris Tanna of light. He's a guy you're not really going to notice on the offensive end, but, you know, he's generally pretty sound on the defensive end. And, you know, we just, you know, talked about Pod Colson and Hoglander and, you know, how well they looked and they passed the eye test and they did generate points uh, for their respective teams. Big news out of the big club this week. Jacob Markstrom going to the All-Star game. Yeah, he's an injury replacement for... Uh, Mark Andre Fleury, yeah, uh, which is great and well deserved. I mean, I I definitely think Markstrom definitely deserves to be there. Uh, overall, he's should be in the conversation for the Vesna Trophy. Yeah, I think so. I think there's enough. Uh, there's, I mean, there's a lot of good goalies out there, but he's certainly worthy at the halfway mark to mm-hmm. to be in the conversation for it. He's been fantastic. Uh, he's won. Uh, I think he's played six of the seven games in this streak. Now he's he's been amazing, and now it gives. PD some company over there and now of course we got the vote for Quinton campaign going as well yeah I mean I think Quinn Hughes uh we're all hoping I know I've seen some deals online with uh Twitter fan bases you know the Canucks fans are gonna vote you know for player x from this team if this club fans vote for player y from their team kind of thing so Hopefully we can get Quinn Hughes into the All-Star game. He definitely deserves to be there as well. Uh, I don't know. Did Kale McCarr make the All-Star team? I think he's uh, one of the last men votes as well, I believe, because I'm, I'm pretty sure McKinnon obviously is there, and I'm yeah. pretty sure they got McCarr as the write-in. Yeah, so that's that's going to be a little, probably a tough bid for the Canuck fans to kind of get him in. But, uh, yeah, get out there and vote. I agree. I, it'd be nice to nice to see that, and there's no issue of bonus and cap spaces uh, people were alluding to in that news first break. That was one of the silliest divides in Canucks Twitter I've, I've seen in a while, and I've seen some pretty silly divides in Canucks Twitter. So <laughs> let's uh, take a look at the last couple games here. We've only had two games since we last recorded. Uh, funnily enough, I got to go to both of them, so that was that was fun to see. And what uh, jumps out at you after the last two games? I know it was kind of a Jekyll and Hyde uh, from being in the arena. The Chicago game was one of the most entertaining of the year, and the uh, the New York game just was, jeez, uh, I mean, it's like everybody was clutching their sticks too tight or something. Yeah, it was like a feast or famine, right? Like uh, the Chicago game, it reminded me, you know, to those old Chicago-Vancouver Canuck rivalries in the early portion of the 2010s uh, where the Canucks and Chicago, they had great games, great rivalry, and it was one of those things where it looked like Chicago was going to run away with the game for at one moment there, and then the Canucks, you know, chipped away, and Markstrom, sure, he gave up five goals, but in the end, you know, he uh, he made a couple of big saves down the stretch, which, you know, kept the Canucks in it and allowed the Canucks to kind of uh, come back and take the take the win from Chicago. Yeah, and Markey's got a 932 save percentage uh, over this winning streak. Uh, 249 goals against. Uh, there's a few games like Chicago where he did give up five, but he was fantastic. But 932 save percentage in a 6-0 record 
for Markey over this. Also, in the, the last couple games, leading bo- uh, goal scorer, bowl scorer, I just gave it away there, leading goal scorer is Bo Horvat. He's got uh, two goals and three assists in the last two games. Well, it's nice to finally put to rest this whole debate about Bo Horvat not being able to score goals on home ice. Yeah, he's definitely put that kind of, well, that issue to rest, I guess, over the last couple of games. Um, that, that line's looked really good though, I thought as well, uh, with adding Louis Erickson up there, which is kind of a strange thing to say or think about, but Erickson has quietly fit in on that wing the last couple games. Would you agree? I would. I mean, look, I'm at the point now where I want to see young guys. So I, you know, I would like to see Zach McEwen, who I believe is still called up with the club playing over Erickson, but you know, the Canucks have a seven game win streak. And Erickson has played well. And I know you have said this before last year when Erickson was playing, you know, on Horvat's wing to end the season. You thought Erickson played well. Yeah, he did. And in, in his last six games, he's got three points. So it's it's respectable what he what he's doing out there. Um, but he did down the stretch last year. I thought he played OK. Uh, the thing is, we, we, we can always talk about Erickson. Um, he's a lightning rod in this city. I am not ever going to shit on the guy because he's still playing for the Canucks it's just his contract we don't like his contract yeah it's a nasty deal and we got two more years still to get through it but the player Erickson has been all right uh, the last little while he's he's such a lightning rod though man he really is yeah I mean if Erickson was uh, you know had a cap hit a three million dollars I don't think it would be you know as a contentious topic for Canucks fans and Look, criticism does deserve to be, you know, thrown his way. He hasn't performed that great. At times, he has looked lazy and lackadaisical, especially, you know, and trying on the back check and stuff like that. But when he is motivated and he's got playing with confidence, which is a big thing for any professional athlete, he he can still be a somewhat positive player for a franchise. And he's one of only four players, four forwards for the Canucks over the last couple of games, who's averaging over a minute in penalty killing time. He's one of the top four penalty killers right now. So you are getting some use out of him. And then that may seem like a little thing, but with the way the Canucks have been loading up their power play, it's really important when they can have other guys go in and kill penalties. And they're not using any of their power play forwards on the penalty kill right now. Yeah, uh, Tanner Pearson is no longer on the PK as well, because no, I know he was one of their better penalty killers early on in the season. It's been Beagle, Schaller, Mott, and Erickson really the last little while. I mean, there have been other guys who have been getting the sprinklings, but it's been those four guys, and that's allowed the power play units, at least for the forwards, to kind of settle in a bit more. And this is something Alex Edler is the, kind of one of the greatest examples, I think, over the last couple games is killing penalties, averaging 3 minutes 51 seconds a game on the power play, averaging 9 seconds a game. So we've talked about this in the past about how do they manage Alex Edler's workload. I think that's uh, pretty interesting to see that there's been a very kind of clear divide with the, the bench between penalty killing and power play. And personally, I like that. Yeah, well, I also think kind of the emergence of Oscar Fantenberg on the second unit power play has kind of helped with that as well. And Myers, his point totals seem to have gone up a bit, which is good. Um and yeah, I think overall, I, I agree with you. And I know you and I have been preaching this for a few weeks now, you know, or maybe a month and a half, that we would like to see Edler's minutes kind of dialed down a bit just to to make sure he's fresh and rested, you know, for the late season playoff push. Yeah, I, it's it's so true. Uh, he's still, even without the power play, he's been a point-a-game player 
since he came back. Uh, and he's one of eight point-per-game players over this seven-game stretch, and it's kind of a, a cheat question, but uh, can you name the other seven players? There's a little, little bit of a trickiness with this one. So there, can you repeat the question? So seven players? Eight, eight players. Eight players. Eight players who are point-per-game over this seven-game winning streak. Do you know who those eight players are? I'm going to say Jake Vertanen. Yep, he's got seven and seven. Bo Horvat. Yeah, nine. Elias Pedersen. Oh, yeah, that was a bold one. He's got nine. Uh, Tyler Myers. Uh, no, he's close. Six and seven. Okay. Um, I'm going to say Brock Besser. Yeah, he's got seven. JT Miller. Nine. Did I say Tanner Pearson? No, but he's got nine as well over the seven. He keeps consistently putting up points. And the last one, it's a tricky one. And it's kind of a cheat, but it's Josh Levo. He got an assist before he got knocked out. Ah, oh, yeah, that, <laughs> that, that is got, a tricky one. He's got one, uh, one point in one game over this last seven-game stretch. But going over to Tanner Pearson, because that's kind of why, where I wanted to steer this towards right now, he continues to really, in, in my opinion, uh, I, I, I've been very impressed with, with what Tanner Pearson has done. He's pacing for a 59-point season right now. Yeah, he had a bit of a slow start to the season, I think, um, which, you know, a lot of players do. But the last month and a half, he's really been one of the more consistent players, especially for a player not playing on the top line. He's arguably been the most productive player outside of the top three of Horvat, Miller and Besser. Yeah, or sorry, Peterson, Miller and Besser. I I knew what you meant. But yeah, yeah, I think uh, it's it's something that. He just continues to impress on my side. He he was killing penalties a lot at the start of the year. He's not doing that anymore now, really. He's now second unit power play. He's always on Horvat's wing, which, again, we, we saw that at the end of last year, and they do have that connection. Louis Erickson's not the long-term fit. Maybe no. one of these prospects or someone is. But it's uh, it's really nice to see where he's kind of fit in after really bouncing around last year. I also wanted to take this into a little article that came out on uh, Pensburg over the last couple days. And this was brought to my attention by someone on, on Twitter. And I unfortunately I can't give credit where credit's due, but it did pop up in a few places when I was looking around. Um, they just rated the Penguins 10 worst trades of the decade. Number four coming in was the Gabranson for Pearson trade. So kind of going back to how we had a series of bad trades, it, it's, it, it goes around. This is, uh, without a doubt, a 100% win for Vancouver. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Good Branson is slowly but surely playing his way out of the league. Yeah. Which is sad because, you know, you don't want to see any guy who's as young as Good Branson is and, you know, was highly touted as he was, you know, to have his career finish before the age of 30, not injury related. But uh, that looks like the trajectory Good Branson's going down. And the Penguins were able to kind of, you know, pivot off Gabranson relatively quick after that trade as well. And for whatever reason, and it, it, it still kind of baffles me, and maybe Phil Kessel was kind of part of the reason because he was playing, you know, he would have likely been playing ahead of Tanner Pearson. But yeah, Pearson didn't really put up any good numbers for the Penguins. And you got, you know, you'd think he'd either be on Crosby's line or Malkin's line. But for whatever reason, he just, he seems snake bitten for his time in Calgary, or sorry, his time in Pittsburgh. Yeah, there, I don't, I don't know what it was either, but he did not put up a lot of points with, uh, with, with the Penguins. Uh, that that whole season was tough, and he's found a home here in Vancouver, so we're we're happy to have him. Yeah, like I said, if you look at Benning's last few moves, and I know the one that most people are going to look to and are still the jury's going to be out is the Tyler Myers signing, but you know if you look at the Pearson trade, 
the JT Miller trade, and I know some people are still trying to argue that it's not a good trade. I, I still see people on Twitter arguing that st- they still don't think it's a good trade, and they're not willing to eat their humble pie. I was a guy, I will admit it, Pete and I, you and I were at the draft. I didn't like the trade. You know, I like the acquisition of a player like JT Miller, but I just thought that giving up a first-round pick to a team that is trying to shed salary seems like we were still playing top dollar, you know, where we should have been able to, you know, get a 20% discount on that trade, at least in my opinion. But I've come around. I'm full circle. I had Miller on my all-decade team, even though the guys only played 30-plus games this year. Uh, it's a giant win for Benning, arguably one of his more successful trades uh, to date. And also just uh, on draft day, after that trade, he made two other trades, two smaller trades, but looking at them right now, I would say they're both wins. Is uh, They Canucks traded a pick along with Tom Pyatt. So they traded a sixth rounder and Tom Pyatt to San Jose, and they got Francis Perron back, who's playing quite well down in Utica, and a seventh rounder. And they used that seventh to pick Arvid Kostmar, who looks like he could be a steal at, at that spot. And the Canucks also, earlier in the day, they traded a fourth rounder to Buffalo uh, and in exchange got a fourth and a sixth. And that fourth was Ethan Keppen, and that sixth with Carl Plasic. So, again, just a couple of kind of smaller trades, but and, and again, those are more kind of draft moves, but... It's the recent trade history. Before that, you had the Jonathan Dolan for Linus Carlson deal. And then you also had the Sam Gagne for Ryan Spooner, which is kind of a, that was a whatever. That's but the, a wash. Yeah, that's, that's a whole lot of nothing all around. But really, kind of since then, it was that good Branson-Pearson trade really kind of set off a fairly positive uh, trend of trades there. Yeah, I agree. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, Jim Benning's made a litany of mistakes during his tenure, but he's done a lot of good as well. And I don't think he gets praise for the amount of good things he's done. Uh, one thing I just wanted to touch on as well, Pete, uh, that we didn't, and I know it wasn't the greatest game, uh, but the Rangers game, the opening ceremony, you know, the nineties yes. night wearing the skate jerseys, having all the old players like Greg Adams, Cliff Ronning, uh, I believe Dave Babich and Gino Ojek were there. Kirk McLean, obviously. Yeah, it was, it was pretty cool, man. Uh, I love how they skated them out. like they did, uh, similarly to the start of the season, but it was cool. I put, I posted a really cool photo of it on Twitter. If anyone wants to take a look at it uh, i was at center ice kind of a nice view right behind of the guys but i thought that was cool like for me that era of the canucks was really important it was when yeah. I, i'd been a canucks fan for a while before that but it was really right around the pavel Bure edition and when more games started to get televised as well yeah uh that i really became more of a canucks fan and I really remember that team with fondness, uh, of course, going to 94, but there were so many characters on that team, so many characters. I still could probably tell you every player number, and I still know what they looked like and what they were on that team, but uh, it was pretty cool, and some of my favorites as well. Yeah, I mean, one of the characters you always talk about, uh, two of them actually, I would say, were Sudrio Momesso and uh, mm-hmm. Jeff Cortnell. I believe yeah. Cortnell actually owned a, a bar, the Big Bamboo, or he's part owner of like a big bar uh, in Vancouver at the time. Obviously, I was way too young to be going to clubs or bars. Yeah, we had one in Victoria, too, overtime. For those who remember, across nice. from the old Memorial Arena there, uh, that was the, the Cortinals place. Oh, really? Nice. I, I believe so. I so mean, I'm pretty sure. They were pretty much in the bar industry. But I guess one of the other reasons why we wanted to bring this up really quickly uh, is the absence, again, of Trevor Linden. Now, I know it's already been announced that he's going to be there for the Sedin's retirement and Legends Week or whatever. But, uh, you know, what are your feelings on Lyndon not being there for, especially honoring that era of the Canucks, which he was arguably, him and Burray were probably the two faces of that era. I'd heard he was out of town um, 
who knows? Yeah, I I I don't know. Uh, maybe as well though, it may be akin to something like when Burroughs was getting honored, the Sedins wanted to take a back seat. Maybe they knew that if Linden was there, it would overshadow guys like Dave Babich a, a bit more, and those guys all deserve the credit for being on that team as well. But also, all those guys were were kind of local guys. They're all guys who still live in the area yeah. as well. Um, but Linden would overshadow them. Maybe not Gino. That was that was uh, pretty cool to see the. Yeah, Gino yeah. I was worried there uh, watching it on TV. I thought Gino might fall a couple I of times. I thought so man. too, man. I thought so too. But uh, it was great to see Gino out there too. Yeah. Ready to get Dave on the line here? Let's do it. All right. Joining us this week, we have David Quadrelli on the line. You can follow him on Twitter, at Quadrelli. I'm sure most of you already do. Also a contributing writer for Canucks Army. And now the new co-host of the Canucks Conversation with our buddy Chris Faber. Dave, thanks for joining us. How you doing? Good, good. Thank you for having me, guys. Oh, thanks. Thanks for coming on. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you and Chris are doing now with the Canucks conversation? Yeah, we've got some good stuff coming for sure. Uh, we've decided we wanted to work together, and he's coming to B- He's moving out here, coming to BCIT with me, and we're going to both be in the Radio Arts and Entertainment program uh, this fall. So we're both really looking forward to that, and it's just good because we're we know we want to work together, and we've both kind of got that drive and. Yeah, we both had pretty good years, so we're hoping to keep that momentum rolling into 2020 with a brand new show. Yeah, I think everyone out here in the Canucks universe is pretty stoked for you guys. You're two of the more prominent voices on Canucks Twitter and always have great reads and great content. So we're we're, we're definitely over here excited to see what you guys are coming up with. Yeah, I appreciate it. We um, Yeah, we're hoping to kind of transfer over the chemistry we had together on all the times I would guest on Canucks Conversation. We're Hoping that carries over to our our main show. I'm sure it will, but uh, yeah, it's it's going to be a lot of fun for sure. Uh, another thing worth mentioning, Dave, is the fact that you were the first recipi- recipient of the Botchford Project. That must have been a huge honor, and congratulations. Yeah, thank you. It was uh, yeah, it was a very humbling experience, and like I said, yeah, it's just it w- it was a huge honor for sure, and very bittersweet because obviously that initiative probably wouldn't exist had it not been for Botch passing away and it's like you you've just uh yeah I don't even know what to say it's just you the the loss of Jason Botchford in this market is something you can't even put into words like I I regret not reaching out to him sooner and I kind of started writing um later and gaining more traction later on um and then I feel like I always feel like I kind of missed my opportunity there because I never really got to know him that well or um, tried to shoot him a sample of my writing or anything like that. But uh, there's a little bit of regret there for sure. Uh, but it's just, you know, wasn't the right time. We, we agree as well. It, it certainly spawned a, a whole community of people putting out Canucks content, ourselves included. We were inspired by it and wanted to kind of help carry the torch. And your co-host Chris was a big help with that as well. So the legacy lives on, and we're glad that you're running with that. And with that, we wanted to kind of start things off here with talking about Jacob Markstrom. And is Markstrom, in your opinion, is he the team MVP through the first half of the season? Well, I think for sure he is. Without him, this team's nowhere near where they are. Uh, you just look at his impact on the games when the Canucks give up a ton of shots and the defense isn't playing as well as it should be. You just look at who's back there making all the saves, and 
keeping the Canucks in games. It's Jacob Markstrom, and he's stealing the Canucks games, and he's giving them an opportunity to win each and every night. And there has been multiple games, especially on this seven-game win streak that we've seen, where he has stolen the game for them. Yeah, I think Markstrom has definitely been an unsung hero for this team. Well, I shouldn't say unsung, but he's definitely proven, you know, starting off last year and now, you know, into this year that he's a legitimate number one goalie. And I know he was highly touted uh, for years as arguably one of the best goalie prospects not in the NHL. And like a lot of goaltenders, it's taken him a lot, a little bit to develop. Uh, I guess I'm, you know, going to call the elephant in the room here. What do you think the Canucks should do come uh, the offseason? Yeah, for sure. So I think the organization plans on re-signing him, and I think that's their main focus. I don't see them letting him walk. Uh, I think it's going to be a a contract, a multi-year contract. They're not going to get him on a one-year deal as much as fans would like to throw that around. There's not a chance in hell Markstrom's going to take a one-year deal when it's his big time to cash in. You only get that one, uh, one time to cash in. As a goaltender, they usually only get one big contract. And this is Markstrom's time. Markstrom's going to be looking to cash in. I think he's going to command at least $5.5 million annually. Don't really know how long the years are going to be, but if it is a longer contract, then maybe they leave him unprotected at the Seattle expansion draft and allow Seattle to take that chance on him. Or maybe it's a two- or three-year deal and they look to re-sign him in free agency later on. But again, this is all so far down the line. It's, it's tough to even speculate that far. But for now, I think that what's going to happen is it's going to be they're going to re-sign him, and I think they're going to have a decision to make when it comes time for the expansion draft. The Swedes in general have, over the past few years, they've taken possibly below market value to stay in Vancouver. I think you can make the case that the Sedins did that, maybe even Alex Edler did that. Do you think that Markstrom is in a situation where he'd be willing to take possibly below market value to get more term to stay in Vancouver? It's a tricky situation, and I'll tell you why. It's because of the expansion draft. Markstrom has, has to have full confidence that the organization won't protect uh, Demko over him if he's going to take that discount in order to stay in Vancouver. Because if he's going to move to Seattle and play on a whole new franchise, his contract follows him around. So if he took a discount in Vancouver only to be picked up by Seattle, that's a bargain of a contract for Seattle. And it's really not something that Markstrom would probably want to do with a new team. So the only way to give him that assurance that he will be the one that's protected is by giving him a no-movement clause, which is something that I haven't heard too many people talking about. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen, so I'm still under the impression that Markstrom is going to cash in on his big payday and he won't be taking a hometown discount. Could you see the Canucks doing something along the lines? I mean, not to the extreme that Florida and Minnesota did with Vegas, but something, a side deal with Seattle, where if Markstrom does have a no movement, they make a deal to protect Thatcher Demko as well? It's interesting that you say that, because I've talked to a lot of people about that. And the thing is, I'm under the impression that after seeing how those deals that you talked about with Florida and Minnesota kind of backfired, and they worked in the favor of Vegas, you look at what those have done, and you kind of feel that the GMs are going to be a little little more like little smarter this time around and they're not going to be making a side deal to keep one player they won't be doing that i don't think this time around not to the extent that they were when it was vegas i guarantee you that but it'll be interesting to see for sure i just think that teams now are going to be a little more wary of making side deals in order to keep one player 
do you think this affects Demko at all moving forward? I know Demko's camp in the past has kind of made some demands with the Canucks management last year after Christmas. There was reports that, you know, his uh, side demanded to be called up uh, to the big club. And, you know, when he was healthy, he played well. Uh, how do you think this affects Demko moving forward if the Canucks do end up signing Markstrom to a, a four or five year deal and he gets a full no move clause? Well, there's no way the Demko camp's going to be happy, and that's just a given. It's, it's, he wants to play. He's done his time in the minors. He's now performed as the backup. He's been good every time he's been called upon. So the Demko camp definitely won't be happy about this because he's been their goalie of the future from the day he was drafted. And now with the resurgence of Jacob Markstrom later in his career, it becomes tricky because the Canucks are on the cusp of contending is what they think, and they're trying to make the playoffs, and they've made it very clear, and you want that young goaltender with your young core. So it's just such a tricky situation with the Seattle expansion draft. It's going to be very interesting to see how it all plays out, but I'm still under the impression that if and when the Canucks sign Markstrom, the Demko camp isn't going to be too happy depending on what that deal looks like. Again, if there's a no-movement clause, they'll be furious, I'm sure. I don't think there will be one, but... Just to give you an example, if there was a no-movement clause and the Demko camp knew that they were going to be the ones that were going to probably be moving to Seattle, then I don't think they'd be very happy with the Canucks. Do you think Canucks management, because I know Benning has quite often you know, stated, like you just said, about how Demko is the goalie of the future. He used a second-round pick on him and you know, arguably one of Benning's best second-round picks so far. Uh, do you think that the Canucks would actually kind of put all their chips in with Markstrom? And, you know, who do you think will be the goalie of the future for this team in the next three, four years? Do you think it's going to be Markstrom? Or do you think they will kind of uh, lean towards Demko? I think it's tough because there's that recency bias. Markstrom has been outstanding lately. And he has been good up right up until, like, the end of last year. He was solid. And then this season he got started. He was solid. And then everything with his father happened. And obviously you can't fault the goaltender for trying to find, struggling to find his stride a little after that happened. But Markstrom maybe had one or two bad games in November, December, and now he's just been dynamite again. And it's just, it goes to show that Markstrom really is, probably he is the superior goaltender out of the two right now. But then again, Markstrom's going to be turning 30 in, what's the date today? The 6th. He's, his birthday's on January 31st. So he'll be turning 30, and all of a sudden you've got a 30-year-old goaltender, and then you have Thatcher Demko, who's much younger. So the goalie of the future, I still think, is is Demko, but that's why it gets so interesting with the Seattle expansion draft and the UFA status of Markstrom. It becomes very interesting to see what the organization is going to do because they have a lot of options. And I guess they don't fully need to decide just yet. We do have another year before Seattle, but you do have to start laying the foundations. I mean, Demko's contract is up at the end of next year, and you're right. I don't think there's any way Markstrom signs a short-term deal with the Canucks. And then you also have Di Pietro down in the minors, who could be another NHL goalie as well. But it does create—it's not something we have to panic about yet, but there certainly needs to be groundwork, especially with some of the dead salary space that's eating up the books next year. Yes, exactly, and that's just it, right? Is it's it's a pro- it's a problem for the future, but it's one that needs to be talked about. It's one that they can't just ignore, and then when it pops up, they say, "Oh, well, we didn't even plan for this." I'm sure the organization has a rough outline of what they're going to do, and as much as we like to say that we know, nobody really knows what that looks like. Again, my guess 
my my guess is that it's going to be a re-signing Markstrom and then leaving him unprotected in the expansion draft. But again, we'll just have to wait and see. It's over a year away. And also, you never know who else is going to be out in the expansion draft too. I mean, it, just because he's exposed, it doesn't. It isn't a given that he's going to get taken by Seattle. Yeah, exactly. Like, there's a couple other good dual uh, goaltending tandems in the NHL that the goalies will be exposed. Like, you know, you look at Arizona; they got Kemper and Antti Ranta. Uh, I think Kemper's been uh, unbelievable lately. So it looks like he'll be the one that gets protected if he keeps this up. He's like up for the Vesna and all this stuff. And Kemper, yeah, Kemper's been awesome for Arizona. So you just look, that's just an example of one tandem right now that a team would like Seattle would be looking at and saying, okay, well, maybe we can take a shot on a Ranta or something like that. Yeah, the other guy I think that a lot of people are looking at that might not be protected is a Matt Murray in Pittsburgh. Tristan Jari uh, seems to have taken over the crease there. Yeah, exactly. There's another one, another tandem right there. You, you would be foolish not to lock up Matt Murray if you have the opportunity to do so. Stanley Cup winner, still, again, a young goaltender, and he's won. He knows what it takes to win, and yeah, he checks all the boxes if you're Seattle. Um, moving on from the goaltending and uh, moving to the defense, and one guy that I think all Canucks fans, especially yourself, have just been over the moon for is uh, Quinn Hughes. And you wrote a great article about Quinn Hughes recently, the 43 Reasons article, I'll call it, and uh, just how impactful Quinn Hughes has been in his rookie year. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a fun one to write. Uh, I'm going to take a break from the listicles, listicles for sure because uh, those, are, those are tough. Those are a lot of work, and uh, I like it. It's, it's, it's a fun thing that I do. I guess I do it now. Um, I, again, I started off with the 51 reasons not to trade Stetcher, uh, which is something I think the organization should do now, but we can maybe get into that later. Uh, and then, yeah, followed it up. Uh, I did the 77 reasons Nikolai Goldobin should be called up. I did that with Faber. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just a lot of fun to do those, but it's, it's very time-consuming, and I don't know if the payoff is worth it, so I might have to take a break on those for a while. Yeah, I was looking at that. I was like, geez, man, that's, some, that's getting pretty deep there. I, I don't think I'd have the patience to come up with 43. I'd probably come up with about five and say that's that's good enough and then base an article on Oscar Fantenberg or something. Um, yeah, Hughes, yeah, totally. Hughes on the ice, though. Over this seven-game stretch, he's got the second-highest time on the ice uh, per average among players. How impressive is that for a guy who's in his first NHL season? It's impressive, but his ice time has gone down since Edler's return. And that's, again, like, I hate to hate to pull the conversation toward Alex Edler, but you just look at the importance of Alex Edler to this team. Hughes was logging big minutes while Edler was out, and he was out there in all situations. And, you know, talking about Hughes' performance, it's incredible that this young defender is able to play in all situations, and the Canucks are comfortable putting him out there against uh, their opponent's top line. It's just having Edler around to log those big minutes is something I think Canucks fans take for granted. And you look at the record with and without Edler, Edler's been a pretty big part to the team for sure. Um, but yeah, Hughes, just unbelievable. Like you, you, can't, you can't say enough good stuff about him. Just the power play, the hockey IQ, the defensive game even. He's been solid on both ends of the ice, which has been really good to see because there was a lot of question marks around his defensive play. And I don't think a lot of that was warranted. I think everyone kind of assumed a learning curve was imminent with a young defender, but... He has been, he's checked all the boxes and he's been incredible so far. 
Yeah, I agree with you. I think his defensive play has been massively underrated. Uh, you knew a guy who can skate as well he, as he can, can kind of skate of, skate himself out of mistakes. But uh, even the last game against the Rangers, he made a great uh, back check play to kind of cut the uh, offensive player off. And his, his defensive play has been really, really great. And like I said, very underrated. Uh, question for you. How many times have you voted for him for the last man? I think I'm up to six now or four, five. Something like that. I've been doing it almost every day. I think there may have been one day where I forgot, but uh, yeah, I've been doing my part. Nice, nice work there. Um, just touching back on the Edler Hughes thing. Those, those are the top two ice time loggers for the Canucks over this stretch, which isn't surprising. And I, I do agree with you just how important Alex Edler is to this team. In the five games he's been back, he's picked up five helpers. He leads the team on ice. But one thing I've noticed is that they're not using him on the power play as much anymore, which is something I know that Doug and I have been advocating for for a bit, just to manage his workload. Quinn Hughes, though, he's he's had a couple of power plays where he's been out there for pretty much the full two minutes as well, and they've been leaving that whole big unit out there. What do you think of that approach? I like it, but the second unit has been producing pretty well, and they've been good. Godette there, Vertan, and those guys, they've been they've been a good second power play unit and I know Travis Green hasn't had that during his time with the Canucks he's been used to having to throw out a Marcus Granlin for example on the second power play um so it's kind of a luxury that I think is a little new to Travis Green but you know it's kind of a no-brainer that you would like to keep Elias Pedersen Brock Besser out there as long as possible alongside Quinn Hughes over a Tyler Myers Adam Gaudet Anna Vertanen and a Roussel you'd want to keep out that first unit as long as you can so I mean, until they're tired, why not? Yeah, it's true. It's it was. I was at the Rangers game, and I, I just kept looking at him for these power plays. I'm like, geez, these guys are still out there. I keep watching for the change, and no, they just go right back out there. And it, it was a little frustrating that Rangers game. I mean, there was just it was a whole lot of passing. But it, I agree, it's an interesting approach. And as a five man unit, they lead the NHL in power play goals right now. Yeah, exactly, and yeah. I'm- Sorry you had to attend that Rangers game. That was, I think, that was probably the most boring game of the season. I was, I was watching that one, and it looked like neither team could complete a pass, and just it was, yeah, that was that was definitely a tough one to watch. And all the icings from from Tyler Mott, yeah, Tyler Mott, yeah, that was uh, that was definitely a tough game to watch. Yeah, I thought the circus was in town the night before, and the ice was really bad or something. But I actually checked, and there was nothing on the night before. I was at the Blackhawks <laughs> game two nights before, though, so that made up for it. Oh, for sure. That Yeah, there you go. That was probably the most entertaining game of the season. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't imagine having to write a post game for that game. It would have been dreadful. Yeah, me neither. I'm glad I didn't have to. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was certainly a, a Markstrom show, that one. Um, let's talk a little bit as well uh, about Tyler Myers, um, who's had a bit of a resurgence in December. Um, what what is What's kind of struck you about him and the way his game has changed from October to December? confidence is the biggest thing uh you know playing alongside um a different defense partner in Oscar Fantenberg has been a new kind of a new experience for him but I think it was also kind of a kick in the pants to be put on the third pairing and just getting back with Alex Edler for a bit even if it's albeit a short time time frame that we've seen I think Myers has regained his confidence maybe it was because he was put on the third pairing and he sees a fellow free agent signing, albeit to a lesser extent, Jordy Ben, sitting in the press box. He's wondering, oh boy, am I next? 
you know, I, I doubt they'd actually healthy scratch him in his first year into this albatross of a contract. Um, but I, I, I think it's confidence for Tyler Myers. I mean, he's playing confident right now, and you, you love to see it because I think, what's he at, like six points in this seven-game win streak? I'm, I am just spitballing. Yeah, no, you're right. Don't three, really know. I think, three goals, three assists. Yes, yeah, the three goals, yeah. Um, yeah, he, he's playing with confidence. It's, it's fun to score. I know his goals, like, well, two of them haven't been big, like, crazy goals. Or no, it's just a one. I'll, I'll give him the, I'll give him the, the game winner that he scored the other night. That was a, that was a hell of a goal, actually. Um, but again, that was all created by Quinn Hughes, Bulwarvat, all those guys. But, uh, that, that goal against David Riddick, that, that kind of made me laugh because, uh, you know, he didn't think that was going in. He was trying to get a tip. He was trying to find a rebound and David Riddick lets it through his legs. That was just a tough one for Riddick for sure. But yeah, just confidence for Tyler Myers. And I, I think he is playing with confidence right now. And I think that's when he's playing at his best. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I think he does look a lot more confident. Uh, you know, if you look at, and points don't dictate exactly how well a player is playing, but if you look through the first two months of the season, October through November, Myers only had four points, and he ended December with nine points. Um, so I believe he was uh, either tied or just below uh, Quinn Hughes for most points for the month uh, by a defenseman. Uh, Myers definitely looks like a guy who is finding his confidence and maybe playing on that third pairing and not having to go up against the other team's big guns is a little bit better. But uh, you mentioned that you thought that his contract is a bit of an albatross. Uh, I'm guessing you weren't the biggest fan of the Myers signing? You know know what? Not really. Like, I I honestly didn't mind the sign. Like, you're out to lunch if you think Tyler Myers doesn't make the Canucks a better team than they were last season. Like, you know who they had last year on the defense corps. It was Erica Branson, Michael Delzato, Derek Pouliot. So Tyler Myers is a big step up from that. And the Canucks knew they had to repair that blue line. And, you know, Jordy Ben, too. That's a good signing. Oscar Fandenberg, all these guys. They were good signings by this regime, for sure. Um, you can't complain, I guess, about a contract because it's, it's, it's what they had to get them for. And if another team was offering something similar, then, you know, that was their guy, and they went after their guy, and you have to respect that. My point being there was just that was their big free agent signing, and I think healthy scratching him in his first year is, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a tough blow to his confidence for sure. Um, and what does that really tell your season ticket holders? What does that tell your owner? Um, what does that tell your fans? Like, what does that tell the rest of the incoming crop of free agents? What does that tell a Tyson Berry when you go to the uh, bargaining table? Like, he's, he's looking at that and saying, well, your big guy last year – was a healthy scratch at times. So that's, that, that was all I meant by the Albatross thing. Is just It was a big deal that they signed him. Uh, so I just, yeah, I, I don't think he'll be healthy scratched anytime soon. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Like for me, my biggest issue with the Myers signing was the term. You know, the money is the money, whatever it is, but it's the term. And that's kind of the issue with the Louis Erickson signing as well, right? And this regime, and again, you know, I do think... There have been people that have been a little too critical of Benning on some aspects, and he hasn't gotten enough credit when he has done well. But he does give out term like it's going out of style. But I guess the one thing opposed to Mike Gillis, he's giving guys term but not handing out no trade clauses. So it's kind of like you're giving one to make up for the other, I guess. Yeah, no, you're 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 spot on with that analysis for sure. Um you know, it, it's it's easy to sit here and criticize a GM for uh, signing these, getting these contracts uh, signed, but he's gotten his players. Um, the the question then becomes, okay, well, which players have helped the Canucks? And 
you know, you, you just look at the list. There's a long list of players that have helped, like, you know, a Roussel, even a Beagle. Like, I, I don't mind Jay Beagle. I know a lot of people really don't like Jay Beagle. I think you win with players like him, and he, he is important to the team for sure. Um, I just, yeah, I, I definitely think Benning doesn't get enough credit sometimes. Uh, but it, it, it's always funny to me because I, I, when I was ma- mainly getting started, uh, people, people used to call me a Benning bro. And I, I'm, I, I like to think I'm pretty far from that. Like, I like to give credit when credit's due. But, you know, there is a lot of mistakes. And, uh, you know, you, you can't ignore that. And that's just, I don't know. I think you have to have a level of uh, objectivity when you're in, in the role of a media member, per se. I really don't consider myself one. But, you know, I, I have to at a certain point. So you kind of you have to just kind of have a level of objectivity about you. Yeah, we agree. We uh, we do the same thing. We're not Benning bros. We're not bitter bros. We just try and look at the team and praise when they've done well and also critique and criticize when they haven't done so well. Um, and going back, uh, you mentioned Jordy Ben in there, and it's it's kind of interesting. He's the seventh man right now, which in my opinion, that's a bit of a luxury. Last year, the Canucks skated 14 different defensemen, and they've only skated seven up to this point of the season. And granted, you know, Chatfield yeah. and Breezebois, they've kind of come up and skated with the team but they've only had seven defensemen play games do you think it's uh any sort of issue having a guy like Jordy Ben sitting upstairs right now or do you see this as maybe a, a three-man rotation in the bottom with Stetcher and Fantenberg no I don't see it as a problem uh if it is a problem it's a great problem to have uh it's better than having to throw in a breeze boy in the lineup when you really don't want to in an Ashton Sautner and go trade for Luke Shen so that your defense doesn't completely fall apart. It's definitely a better problem to have than those that I just mentioned. Um, but I think what we're seeing right now with Ben being the quote-unquote seventh D-man is just a case of Fantenberg playing really well when he was given the opportunity and then Edler returns. You're obviously not going to sit Edler out, but you want to keep Fantenberg in the lineup when he's playing as well as he was. Uh, and Fantenberg was playing. Like, Don't get it confused. Fantenberg was playing really, really well when he was in the lineup in Edler's replacement. He was a very good replacement for Alex Edler. Um, he obviously wasn't logging the same minutes, and that's where Edler kind of makes his money, is logging those big minutes. But I think that was just a case of us seeing, uh, or not us, sorry, uh, Coach Green seeing that Fantenberg was playing really well, and you have to get someone out because you want to keep Fantenberg in while Jordy Ben's the odd man out. I think as soon as this win streak ends, which, you know, it could today when this, this podcast goes out. Um, I think once the win streak ends, we'll see Jordy Ben get back in. I'm just under the impression that Coach Green doesn't want to shake up his defense corps during a win streak. You don't really want to shake up your lineup at all during a win streak. Um, and, you know, the Canucks have won seven straight with Benjamin in the lineup. I do think he's taken a step back. He hasn't played quite as well as he, as he, as he was before. Um, so I do think that we will see Fantenberg back in the press box basically as soon as the Canucks lose a game here. So you think Fantenberg goes back in the press box over Stetcher? Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I think Stetcher, if anything, they're trying to trade at the deadline because Tanev's expiring. Stetcher's, um, Stetcher's an RFA. I think they're going to do something similar with the Ben Hutton. I don't think they're going to qualify Stetcher. Um, so I think they're looking at the avenue of trading Stetcher, and he's not gaining any value if he's sitting in the press box. So maybe he'll sit in the press box when they're nearing a trade or something like that, or they, the calls start heating up and uh, they want to keep him healthy, similar to what Arizona did with Taylor Hall. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't think 
uh, Troy Stetcher is going to be a healthy scratch and then go into RFA status. Yeah, there's definitely a bit of a bit of concern with uh, the space that we have allotted next year to sign some of these RFAs. You have Vertanen, Gaudet, Mott, McEwen, and Stetcher, all RFAs, and that's not even getting into the UFAs that we have, which are Markstrom, Levo, Tanev, Fentenberg, and Schaller. Um, and you kind of look at the dead space that we have eating up on the cap right now between Ericsson, Sutter, Berchi, Spooner, and Luongo. And I shouldn't say Ericsson and Sutter are dead space, but, you know, they're kind of heavy contracts to have. Those okay, those okay. contracts add up to 20% of our current cap space right there. Uh, so with that in mind and, and kind of being creative with the Canucks moving forward, is it more important for them to try and regain some cap space for next season? Or is it more important for them to try and recoup a first rounder or even another second rounder pick uh, as it looks like right now they will make the playoffs? That's a good question. And that's one that you, again, you have to wait and see. But what do I think is better? I think it's better to have cap space and it's better to be able to go after a Tyson Berry or a, a, one of these free agents, right? And, you know, we look at it now, it's really looking like the Canucks are not going to be able to even call Tyson Berry once. Because we obviously know he's going to command more than a Tyler Myers did last offseason. And I think if there's any interest in coming home, that that'll be something, something that the Canucks want to explore for sure. And it'd be cool to have Tyson Berry in a Canucks uniform. I'm sure that's something they'd all like to see. Uh, do I think it's possible? Not so much, not currently. So I think getting that cap space is going to be the most important thing for the Canucks to do. Yeah, I agree. What do you say, Doug? Cap space or picks? Uh, I mean, I would say the only thing I would say is that Benning has been more successful with his draft picks than the money he spent on free agents. But I agree with you in the long run. It gives you more flexibility to win now with the current core. A guy you draft in come June is probably not playing for this team for at least two more years. Mm-hmm. That's, that's actually a good point that I didn't really take into consideration. Is Yeah, like... Would you rather uh, Jim Benny has more money on free agency day, or would you rather he has more draft picks on on draft day? And you know the the obvious answer is the draft picks for sure. But uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what they do. I would just like to see them have more cap space, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I agree. When twenty percent of your salary is or your cap is getting chewed up between those five guys that I mentioned, I mean the Luongo thing hurts, but you still got Berchi and Spooner combining for over three million right there as well, which which chews up a little bit. And, uh, I, I mean, I think everyone in Vancouver is not expecting to see guys like Tanev and Fantenberg and Schaller back next year as well. But you're right about the qualifying for Stetcher. I think it's a very similar situation as Ben Hutton. And Stetcher does have arbitration rights as well, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. I believe so, yep. Right on. Dave, we're going to have to wrap this up, uh, let you go. Thanks again for joining us, man. Um, we really appreciate it. And we're wishing you and Chris... All the best on the Canucks Conversation podcast. You can follow them at Canucks Convo. They're one of the better Canucks podcasts out there. Probably better than us, eh, Doug? I'd say so. <laughs> and you can no, follow. We haven't even started yet. You guys are doing some good work. <laughs> I appreciate it. And of course, you can follow David Quadrelli at Quadrelli on Twitter. And we'd highly recommend that you do. And uh, David, do you have anything uh, you're working on right now that uh, you want to let the people know? Yeah, thanks for asking, actually. I've got the uh, Markstrom piece that I'm hoping, uh, you know, we're recording this uh, Monday evening. I'm hoping to have it done uh, and posted for tomorrow, which is the day that this podcast is going up. So 
Hopefully it's up on Canucks Army. Uh, it's a piece on Jacob Markstrom and how he's been the Canucks MVP this season and how the Canucks really need him to be that MVP in the second half as well if they hope to make the playoffs. I agree. Markstrom for MVP, I think right now it's hard to argue otherwise. Mm-hmm. All right, yeah, thanks for uh, joining uh, Pete and I on uh, the Canucks Speakeasy podcast, David, and uh, we'll have to do this again somewhere down the line. All right, for sure, boys. Thanks for having me on. Right on. Thanks again, man. And it's that time again for the free pour open floor segment of our episode. And I'm just going to jump right into it. And I know uh, Pete and I, we kind of discussed this right off the hop about the amazing weekend in sports uh, starting Saturday morning and, you know, carrying all the way till Sunday night and I just wanted to take a moment to essentially talk about one team in particular, which is my beloved Pats that unfortunately couldn't get it done against the Tennessee Titans this week. Uh, Tom Brady didn't look great. I know there's a lot of talk about Brady maybe signing with a different club and moving on from New England. Uh, I hope he just retires. You know, he he was a Patriot. He will always be a Patriot. No one remembers Brett Favre playing for the New York Jets or playing for the Minnesota Vikings. You know, he was a Green Bay Packer. So Tom Brady, uh, if you want to retire this year, please do. And let's hope that Tua Tyogo Lavola, who Tua will just say, uh, who did uh, opt for the draft this year, uh, let's hope he falls to the Patriots. I forgot Favre was a Jet. I remember the Viking, but I forgot that. Um, For myself... I want to talk, uh, again, kind of going on the historical route here, but I wanted to talk about the Denman Arena. And I think it's something that a lot of Vancouverites know existed, but don't really know a lot about it. Uh, Next time you're kind of driving out of downtown Vancouver and you're about to go through Stanley Park, you got that little park right there before the park, which is the Devonian Harbor Park. Take a look there. That's where the Denman Arena used to stand. In 1915, the Millionaires won a Stanley Cup in that building. That's where Cyclone Taylor was leading the team, and Cyclone Taylor's a whole other story. But the Patrick family built that arena, I believe it was 1911. It burned down in 1936, but it was the largest indoor rink with artificial surface at that time in the world. It also seated 10,000 people. It was larger than the original Madison Square Garden. It was quite the sight to behold in Vancouver. And there's nothing there. there, I think there may be a plaque or something. I should go down there and take a look. But the Patrick family built that. They built the Patrick Arena over in Victoria as well. There is a plaque for that one. And that's where the Victoria Cougars won their Stanley Cup. But next time you're going over, uh, coming over, they're about to go over the causeway out of town, uh, going past Stanley Park. Just take a little glance to the right and think there's, that's where the Vancouver team once won the Stanley Cup. Oh, that's really cool. I try to be cool. My mom says I'm cool. Thanks for tuning in to episode 21, folks. Thanks again to Dave Quadrelli for joining us. You can follow him at Quadrelli, and you can follow us at Speak. Uh, yeah, another episode in the books. Give me a follow on Twitter at Doug Venn. And you got me at Pete 
underscore gas. Uh, let's see. Tonight, the streaks go on the line. Seven wins in a row for Tampa. Seven wins in a row for Vancouver. Let's uh, let's see how this goes. And go Canucks, go. Yeah, the two hottest teams in the league. And also, give our uh, Canucks Spotify outro playlist a listen. Uh, it's Canucks Speakeasy. Uh, the funky, groovy tunes you're hearing now are going to be added to the ever-growing playlist. Love it. And on that note, let's uh, let's put this away and get ready for the game. Another episode down the hatch. Hasta luego.